Hey friends, Abigail here. Before we get in today's episode, I wanted to tell you that Savannah and I have started a book club designed especially for fiction writers. If you've been enjoying the episodes where we dig into the first chapters of Harry Potter books or any of the other first chapter deep dive episodes on Lit Match, you're going to really love our book club. It's called Book Notes, and the idea behind it is simple. We all read the same book, and then we meet online to engage in a craft-based discussion to share our learnings so that we can, of course, have fun and improve our writing craft too. If this sounds like we're deconstructing our favorite stories to see how and why they work, that's because we are. Our first meeting was so much fun, and we got so many requests to read a fantasy novel, so that's what we're doing this month. We've picked for our next book club meeting, which is on January 19th, to deconstruct one of my favorite books of all time, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. This book was on multiple bestseller lists. It was a book of the year finalist in 2020, and it has sat with me in emotional ways that I will explain during that book club meeting. So if you want to join us or if you want to learn more, go to savannagilbo.com slash book dash club, and you'll see all the details and next steps. One more time, come join us at savannagilbo.com slash book club. We hope to see you soon. What I think is happening now is that, like you said, Twitter has had a mass exodus of celebrities. There are people like Whoopi Goldberg and Elton John who have left the platform and Gigi Hadid on the younger side and Beak Mill was another one that they've left. And a lot of studies say that there's been a greater departure in U.S. Twitter users than around the country, which I think has a lot to do with Elon Musk allowing people like Donald Trump back on the platform. It is very much embedded in U.S. politics. So what I have seen, though, is there's been about a 4% overall departure from Twitter. In my own following, which is very writing, editor, agent heavy, there's been about a 7% departure. And I've heard this from other writers that I'm friendly with, like Benjamin Dreyer, who's the copy chief general of Random House. It's not his official title, but it should be. Copy chief extraordinaire is what Benjamin Dreyer really is. And also the king of Twitter. So I think Benjamin has also seen about a seven or 8% loss of followers, which is really interesting that there's something that has really struck a chord with our writing community that we are leaving Twitter at a higher rate even than the US average. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career, and also to learn how to write the best manuscript possible so that they can hook that literary agent. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is eager to help writers learn how to blend passion with business. Today's episode is bringing you into that business realm. To be frank, I've been overwhelmed by the amount of news and what's going on with Twitter and how all of these changes on Twitter are leading to potentially a mass departure of book industry professionals. And I think one of the reasons why I have felt like this is important to discuss, but wanted some help in navigating my understanding of the situation, why it's so dire and where we might see writers and book industry professionals going in the future with Twitter is because from the very beginning out of all the social media platforms, Twitter was the social media platform and still kind of is the social media platform 
where I felt like the most literary agents existed. And of course, as a writer who's trying to understand not only who to reach out to, but how to navigate the business world, I found Twitter as a great resource in that if there was a literary agent that I really liked or an editor or publishing house that I was interested in, they would tweet something that may or may not resonate with me. And if it did, they often had a link that I could go do my own research. So all this to say, I have seen more and more particularly literary agents who are flirting with the idea of leaving Twitter. And they've been testing out other social media platforms like Hive or some other areas. And I'm just trying to wrap my head around what is happening on Twitter and what does this mean for finding book industry professionals on social media so that as writers, we can navigate our way, our path, and broaden our knowledge about publishing insights, potentially a world with less Twitter relationships with these agents, editors, book marketers, publishing houses have at it. I am not the expert on this, and I really wanted to speak to an expert who could talk about this and understand the future and what this means for writers. I was lucky enough to be pointed into the direction of Andrea DeWord, and even more fortunate that Andrea said yes to coming on the podcast. So here I am, extremely excited to bring you Andrea DeWord. If you don't know who Andrea DeWord is, she is a writer and book marketer in Brooklyn, New York, who worked years at Big Five Publishing Houses. As a full bio, Andrea received her MS in Publishing from New York University and BA in English from the George Washington University. A born and bred Minnesotan, Andrea now lives and writes in Brooklyn, New York, and she is currently revising her first novel, tentatively titled, What We Sacrifice for Magic. Andrea is also a book marketing strategist, consultant, and speaker with 13 years of big five publishing experience, most recently at Harvest, an imprint of HarperCollins. Andrea's publishing experience ranges from commercial and literary fiction, memoir and narrative nonfiction, to business books, cookbooks, and best-selling lifestyle brands. Andrea has held positions at Crown, Random House, One World, Spiegel and & Gru, and Simon & Schuster. Andrea was honored by Publishers Weekly as a 2019 Starwatch finalist, and in her roles, Andrea has led the marketing and advertising campaigns for over 100-plus career New York Times bestsellers. These include books by Elizabeth Burr, Amy Bloom, Mary Higgins Clark, Emma Klein, Ta Nahasi Coates, Charles Duke, Fanny Flagg, Pope Francis, Trevor Noah, Anna Quindlen, Ruth Reichel, Elizabeth Strout, Peter Strzok, Matthew Thomas, Lauren Weisberger, Tara Westover, and former ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, among many others. Andrea is a wealth of knowledge, and you'll learn from this in the conversation she easily could talk about book marketing strategies and anything that's dealing with getting books into the hands of readers and getting them to talk about it for days, which is why I'm so excited to bring you Andrea today to sort through what's going on with Twitter, what this means for writers and book industry professionals going forward, as well as some great book marketing strategies and how you can think about book marketing when it comes time to publish your book. Hi, Andrea. Thanks so much for joining me on Lit Match. I'm really excited to pick your brain. I have listened to other podcast episodes with you and I've just admired your work. So 
definitely, I know there's a lot to learn from you. And I'm so happy to have an expert in the corner as I ask these questions today. Great. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah. So before we start, I figured I'd let listeners know a little bit more about you. You are a book marketing expert, and I'd love to hear more about your career path and what has led you into the niche of the publishing world that you are in today. Sure, of course. I've been in book marketing and publishing about 13 years now. I started as a pub office assistant. So I started doing a little bit of everything, working with the associate publisher at Pocket Gallery and Threshold, part of Simon & Schuster. And through that experience, I started to get to work on some of the marketing campaigns. And this was back in the late, late 2000s, is that what we say? This was in 2008, 2009, when social media was just starting to come about. And One of the first things I got thrown as a publishing assistant was the keys to Threshold's Twitter. It was one of those days of, you know, the associate publisher was like, here, you know, you're young, try this. That was one of the things that actually really made me go straight into book marketing. So from from there, I took a really a straight marketing path. I moved over to the SNS imprint proper where I really learned how to do marketing campaigns and work on book launches and see whatever book needed. I was working on lots of commercial and literary fiction at that time, some business books. From there, I moved over to Random House, where I think I really learned to manage other people. That's where I became really a a boss and a mentor and helped teach other marketers how to market books. Since then, I've also moved to HMH, which was then acquired by HarperCollins. So in my last couple of years of my career, I've learned about organizational change and what it really takes to make a marketing team successful, thinking about what tools do we need, what process do we need, and really taking a big picture approach from the nuts and bolts of actually doing marketing campaigns with authors to helping others be successful on their marketing campaign. I've done it all in this industry. And I always joke that half my job is teaching authors how to use the internet. And I think that has not changed in all my years here. And my latest shift of where I am now, a couple months ago, just in September, I left HarperCollins and have started my own book marketing agency. Thank you. So I am signing clients right now. I have a couple campaigns that are up and running and I'm taking this really solo and looking to build a full pack of services that supports books and authors in a new way. I'm excited for you. It's always a big leap to go off and do your own thing. What inspired you to make that move? I will be perfectly honest that some of it has been the challenges that publishing has seen in the last couple of years. And I've seen authors becoming frustrated with not getting the hands-on in-house services that that the in-house teams don't have time for. And it's, it's through no fault of the in-house teams. It's not to blame any marketers or publicists. It's that the in-house teams are being given so many different things to do and being pulled in so many different directions. So I see a gap for services and for really hands-on marketing and support for authors for things that those teams just don't have time for anymore. When we're being asked to be social media experts and website experts and discovery experts and trade marketing experts. At one point, I was also doing library marketing and audiobook marketing on top of everything else. When we're all being asked to wear so many hats, I think things will fall between the cracks. And so over over the last year, I really found myself thinking, what else could this look like? How how else can we support books and authors? And what what can I do to bring, you know, my skills to authors in a different way? That was a lot of it. That was a big jump. And then part of it is just work-life balance. I wanted to see what it feels like to be my own boss for a while and, and build a team and put together some some resources. Some of the things I love, and I'm sure we'll talk about this at some point also throughout today, but I love marketing automation. I love using new tools and technology and I love helping authors do that. And that was one of the things I just wasn't having time to do in-house. And a lot of the systems are really old, you know, everywhere I've worked from top to bottom. Some of the the databases and the content management systems are ancient and they're hard to hard to change when they are 
so complex and managing, you know, hundreds of thousands of different different pieces of content. So I was curious, what would it look like to build that from the ground up and have a nimble system built on new technology, which is, you know, one thing to do for a small marketing agency. But that was something I was curious to explore and see what see how it can look. Very exciting. I love the changes that you're thinking about and reflecting on specifically how you're working with your clients. What do you see doing differently now and allowing yourself to have more one-on-one time with them or helping them have what they weren't getting in a publishing house? I think it comes back to that technology and looking at some solutions really to help authors spend their time in a better way. I, you're not, this part hasn't changed. That I, I see authors that are, that are not marketers. They're afraid of social media. They're afraid or maybe not afraid, but they just don't want to participate in social media or they don't understand marketing and maybe don't want to or don't have time or don't know what they're supposed to be doing there. So I think a lot of my role then is to use the technology to make it as easy on them as possible. I'm working with a couple clients right now on setting up just some of these automations of, okay, you get a Google alert about yourself or about your book. And from there, it pushes through to Zapier. Zapier is one of those automation tools that I love. Then that Google alert can be plugged into your social media calendar. So into a Hootsuite or a Buffer or Later is another one that we like. So it can be plugged into your social media content calendar. And then you can automate to tweet out from there or post to Twitter, post to LinkedIn, post to Facebook and Instagram if we can add an image. So instead of getting a Google alert and doing those six steps manually, we can set it up to have that be done in maybe one push, just double checking, do we like the content? Is this good content that we want to repost? So I'm doing a lot of those things. So authors can spend an hour a week on social media or really not have to touch it much at all once we get these things set up. We're doing similar things, work with a lot of authors that get speaking requests or other B2B partnership requests. So setting up some forms and automations on their website, get a speaking request in, you're automatically going to have a client fill out a form with information and get this back to us. If it fits these eligibility requirements, then we will contact them for for their follow up. So we're automating as many of those processes as possible, which some of the initial setup can take, you know, four, five, six hours. That's not time we had in-house to be doing that one on one with every author. When we're being marketers in-house are asked to work on 12 or 24 books in a season, sometimes at different times, I've worked on up to 65 books in a year. You don't have that six hours a week to figure out that automation. So a lot of it is just having time to work on these systems and these processes, which now I can apply to multiple authors once we've got it figured out. That's great. I have a teaching background. So I am now a freelance editor and book coach, but I had a teaching background and I worked as TV, radio and film, and I worked as a creative writing teacher and technology. I had my instructional technology license. So part of that job is exploring technology and helping. And I think that that was exactly one of the biggest things I'm saying all this because that was one of the biggest things was that you need that one-on-one time because often it's just like anything. Often the initial learning curve takes a little bit of adjustment, but it's not that hard. And right. if you can have someone walk you through it, that overwhelming feeling of figuring out something new, which that's natural, that's a natural reaction to anything, can be overcome pretty easily if you have someone who's an expert and can advise you in that. So I love that you're doing that. And I agree with you 100%. I have had many writers come to me and they're always debating, do I go traditional publishing or do I go self-publishing? And it's a very personal question. I can't answer that for them. No one can answer that for them but themselves. But I think one of the misconceptions is that they think that if they go traditional publishing, that they will not have to do marketing. And of course, that's not the case. This is great to hear that your focus is helping them understand these tricks of the game, I guess it would be, you know, to to really help them market well, 
and to market well in a manageable and timely manner because it can, it can be a lot. We're writing books, we're editing books, mm-hmm. marketing the books. You're still marketing the books while you're writing the next book. And you know that because you're coming out with your very own book. So tell us about that quickly and how you're learning the writing experience as well. Gosh, well, that has been such an interesting learning curve for me to be coming at it from the other side. I, I've spent the last six years now working on my own novel and getting it to the place where we are now. But I was writing for 15 or 20 minutes sometimes at a time in the morning before mostly going off to Random House when I was working on my first couple drafts. I found my agent on Twitter. So a lot of my own publishing story, I think, is very much a Twitter story, which is I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more. But one of the, the best parts of Twitter has been about the connections, about the community. Where we are currently is my agent has the book out on submission. And I'm like, oh, authors, I sympathize with you so much. It is the most nerve-wracking time. And I'm sitting here trying to be patient and twiddling my thumbs, waiting for feedback and knowing that some of my colleagues in the industry are reading my book right now. It's a novel about witches in 1968. It's a coming-of-age novel. It's set in Minnesota in the Midwest. And I also understand that it's not an urgent read right now. So a lot of editors right now in the industry are focused on buying really contemporary current events-based fiction, but also nonfiction. We're seeing still a rise in nonfiction. So I also have this publishing industry brain on the other side that's like, oh, I understand why the editors aren't getting back to us right now. A coming of age novel about witches is not urgent. So I get why it's going to the bottom of their reading pile. It's very funny for me to have my publishing brain working at the same time. But I will tell you that my marketing brain also got in the way sometimes of drafting because I would be halfway through editing a draft and think, oh, I should build my website right now or I need to work on my author platform or do some of these other things. And I will tell you that writers, if you're listening, and I'm sure many of you are, you have to write the book first. It does not matter. Your platform will come. And, you know, that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm working with authors with. Once the book is done, once it is started to your editor, and I think I was using it definitely as procrastination and as a stalling tactic to actually finish the book and get it in shape. So it was a learning curve for me to learn how to focus on what is most important at each stage. Those hidden procrastination reasons sneak up on us, don't they? (laughs) Yeah. What I love about it, though, is that you wrote the book that you felt called to write. And you didn't worry about if it was going to be considered an urgent book. And, you know, I hear that and I love magic and I love coming of age. So immediately that would be at the top of my reading list. Of course, we need more contemporary titles that are, you know, relevant to the changes in society today. But we also need escapism and it's the human condition to go through coming of age changes. So, yay, I'm excited for you. You know, you mentioned Twitter a couple of times, and that's the big reason why we are here today, because I really wanted to, there's been a lot going on with really as Twitter goes up in flames, it feels like. And I think at least I was feeling overwhelmed. I'm sure other writers were feeling overwhelmed. I really wanted to talk to an expert. I was lucky enough to be pointed in your direction. And the reason for this is because Twitter has been a huge asset for me and helping me find people in publishing. So specifically literary agents. LitMatch was created on the foundational idea of interviewing literary agents so that writers can have relief in the agent research process and find them with more intimate conversations than just a manuscript wish list. A lot of literary agents are on Twitter and that's a huge resource of them. Of course, there are other ways of researching literary agents, but If you want to dig deeper, most of them are going to be on that platform. Alongside that, a lot of editors are on Twitter. A lot of publishers are on Twitter. A lot of book marketers are on Twitter. Mentioned this when you started with your book marketing job, you were handed Twitter as an important social media tool to utilize and 
it helps us just find research and have access to information. Then basically what has happened is Elon Musk has taken over Twitter. And a lot I've seen just more and more literary agents, book marketing experts, even publishers are considering the idea of leaving Twitter, if not have already have left Twitter. I'd love to hear your take on this. If you could explain to us quickly what really is going on and why is this so urgent for us to understand and address so that we can make the right decisions going forward and how that's going to impact our ability to connect with the readers if you're a writer. Well, there's so much to unpack here. And you hear my big sigh because I love Twitter. I love Twitter. I think it's been a great community for the last 14 years. And I do think the downfall started a little bit before Elon Musk and the company was up for sale because they were not making enough money for the board anymore. The company has to answer to the board and they weren't happy with the with the profits for the, the last couple of years. So that the company was up for sale. I think that started when Twitter went from the linear timeline to something that is more algorithmic than when they were promoting what I'm going to quote a couple of times from a great newsletter called Publishing is Hard by literary agent Dong Won Song, who wrote a great piece about Twitter a couple of weeks ago. But these Twitter started promoting sensationalism. They started really rewarding eyeballs over engagement and over a real-time timeline. I think that's what really when the downfall started. They were trying to make more money for advertisers and it just wasn't, it really wasn't working, to be frank. The advertising strategy and the, the profits from advertising really have not been on par with something like Facebook or Instagram over the last couple of years. As a marketer, I saw that from our side that Twitter ads just weren't as successful as our Facebook and Instagram ads to the point where we really stopped doing Twitter ads. I don't think I've actually run Twitter ads in a couple of years because they were never successful. So I will say that Twitter has always been a place for community. It has been a place for discourse, for conversation and for discovery. It has not actually been a place for people to click through and buy books. It is not a place where I think people actually click through and buy products, which is maybe also the advertising problem. They were trying to solve a problem, which is really the way the platform works, that people use it for having conversation, not to actually click through and buy a product. So I see why it hasn't been successful for selling books, and I see why it hasn't been successful for advertising in general. What I think is happening now is that, like you said, Twitter has had a mass exodus of celebrities. There are people like Whoopi Goldberg and Elton John who have left the platform and Gigi Hadid on the younger side and Beak Mill was another one that they've left. And a lot of studies say that there's been a greater departure in U.S. Twitter users than around the country, which I think has a lot to do with Elon Musk allowing people like Donald Trump back on the platform. It is very much embedded in U.S. politics. So what I have seen, though, is there's been about a 4% overall departure from Twitter. In my own following, which is very writing, editor, agent heavy, there's been about a 7% departure. And I've heard this from other writers that I'm friendly with, like Benjamin Dreyer, who's the copy chief general of Random House. That's not his official title, but it should be copy chief extraordinaire is what Benjamin Dreyer really is. And also the king of Twitter. So I think Benjamin has also seen about a seven or 8% loss of followers, which is really interesting that there's something that has really struck a chord with our writing community that we are leaving Twitter at a higher rate, even than the US average. I don't know what that says quite yet, but I've been thinking about that in particular of how sensitive are we writing folks about misinformation and free speech and those conversations and how concerning is it that people can be buying that blue check verification now versus having an actual vetting system? And what does it mean to especially, I think, journalists and authors that have worked so hard to get their blue check? I don't have a point. I'm rambling here. But well, so to clarify real quick, when you say blue check, what do you mean by that? Great question. So the blue check mark on Twitter was formerly Twitter verification. 
in the past, there was a really stringent application process. You had to fill out this application and then prove why you are a verified public figure. And for, for most authors, when I would help them with this process in the past, that took linking to about five to 10 public articles about, about that person, proving who they are and why they are a figure of value and of public concern. What that really meant before is that you were a trusted, authorized voice, that you were not a you were not a bot, that you were someone that the public should pay attention to and had maybe some interest in the information coming from this person. And for a lot of marketers, it meant that this was a person maybe of higher clout or of higher following, a higher status of some, in some way. So it used to be a manual verification process. And Elon Musk has since changed those that process and made it now something that people can buy. It is now a pay-for-play move. So any anyone can pay to have that blue check next to their name, which really takes away the the authenticity and the the verification that we looked for for what is a public figure and what do they mean and why should we listen to them? What do you think the benefit of that change? does for Twitter? Why would they make that change? Twitter, I think they're looking for new income streams. I think pure and simple. And I think we're going to see that happening besides verification. There's talk of other other kinds of subscription models that Twitter might be exploring with. They have explored in the past with some almost Substack-like features where you can pay to get exclusive content from someone that you're following. I think we're going to see more of that as they, again, try to rectify the fact that their advertising revenue is not working. So they're looking for basically any other way to bring in money. What it means for the user, though, is that we've lost, again, that authenticity and we've lost the trust factor of what mm-hmm. that means. Anyone can pay for that blue check. It's just revenue. It's just yeah. revenue. Well, and it seems like that's going to widen the privilege factor. Because yes. if you're able to pay for a blue check, then you're going to have a greater chance at getting your content in front of viewers. I can see particularly with books, books are so special because it allows you to share your voice in a very personal way that hopefully inspires empathy and educates and entertains. So I would be worried about the difference in privilege widening and thickening instead of improving, which I feel like we've been trying to make progress on that. So I could see hesitation and worry about that for sure. Have you seen any big names in the publishing circle leave Twitter? And do you understand their reasoning? Is it directly related to that? Or is it more directly related to, you mentioned freedom of speech, just could you go on a little bit more specifically now looking at people in the book industry, publishing professionals in the book industry, and how that's impacting how they're moving forward, either with marketing or business decisions? You know, I don't have a list off the top of my head of authors or publishing folks that have left. I've seen a lot of people, like I mentioned, Benjamin Dreyer, who are preparing for that, who are, who are posting links, you know, here's where to find me on Facebook, or I'm trying this other thing, come find me somewhere else. But I haven't seen a lot of folks actually pull the plug yet. I'm not sure if you have, if you've seen any any big names depart. Okay. No, I've seen a lot of people, particularly Hive, I've seen a lot of literary agents say that they're heading over to Hive. And they're trying it out, but I haven't seen them pull from Twitter yet. So I think it's a testing situation right now. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of authors I've seen. I don't even know. I call them my Twitter friends. We're just Twitter writing friends group of people like Matt Bell, who's a great sci-fi speculative fiction author, Daniel Torday, and a handful of others that I've literally just become friendly with on Twitter. Jamie Attenberg is part of that great Twitter writer writing niche as well. And other folks have been testing out Mastodon. That's the other one that's coming up. And there's also another platform called Post, which I have joined the beta of, which I will say Post to me feels like a cross between Reddit and maybe what Twitter was at one point. And I hate the interface. I hate the interface. It is not as clean as Twitter 
has been. So I see a lot of people signing up for these different platforms, like you mentioned Hive that agents are going to, and then going back to Twitter and saying, this isn't what I'm looking for. This isn't it. I signed up for this and it's not working for me. And that's what I'm seeing. And folks like Benjamin are going back to Facebook and going back to platforms where there are already readers and audiences, but maybe that hasn't been his primary platform. So I also see that happening of authors switching gears and going to one of their other existing platforms. Just to say, I think there's there are alternative alternatives popping up, but there's no clear winner yet in any of them. I would agree with that. These other huge social media platforms that writers use to their advantage and other publishing professionals like Instagram, I would say, would be right up there. Of course, TikTok is a big one, although that usually is more like, can you get your book on book talk versus you being the star of TikTok? Although I'm sure if that helps, then that would help them. But just interesting to explore this other ones you mentioned Facebook. So the big conglomerates, I would say, of social media. And then when you're thinking about that, I guess understanding the differences between what each social media platform offers you and how Twitter is separate from that is important. So could you explain why you think each different social media platform, or at least the big ones, are beneficial to writers and to publishing professionals, what that does for them? And why losing Twitter may impact us in negative ways, but also it might be something that is necessary. Yeah. What I'm saying to authors right now is to still, you know, pick one platform and do it well. That is the advice I will always give. It is very hard for people that have always loved Twitter. And especially I think for our authors that are journalists, I'm thinking of people like Sheila Kolitkar, who's a wrote Black Edge, it works for The New Yorker. That's been her primary platform. So it's it's hard for folks like that to switch and find something else. Then I run down the list of, okay, we have to think about audience first here. So where where are the readers? Where are the readers that you are trying to reach? I think that is where the biggest difference is going to come into these platforms. Facebook tends to be our, our older folks, maybe our traditional book club ladies in the Midwest that you think of. That is who's on Facebook. It's my mom and her Pilates friends. Of course, it's a bunch of other people, but that is a really a core audience. So if you're trying to reach people over 45, I think Facebook is a good bet for, for most authors in general, just general genres. I think the core 25 to 45 year old gang is going to Instagram. That's that's where their, their audience is going to be for the most part. The under 25s, you mentioned TikTok. I think that's where those readers are. So for most authors, I would start with that. Where are your readers and where are you most likely to find them? We, you know, marketers, we want to reach the readers wherever they are, wherever they're hanging out online. We want to try to meet them where they're at. We've been talking about this from the publishing side for a long time. That's why you see publishers getting on TikTok and publishers experimenting with, with the other platforms because we want to be where the readers are. So I would extend that advice to authors. Think about where is your reader most likely to be? We also get LinkedIn, which is interesting, especially for our nonfiction authors. I do really like LinkedIn as a platform. Maybe this is me as a marketing nerd, but it's really great for authors who have long form content and want to build an audience. LinkedIn lets you discover content by hashtags. So if you are talking about management lessons or tips for new managers, anything that you can really categorize in that way, that's great content for LinkedIn. And it lets you reach folks that are outside your network. So that is a great method for any author that is writing about a specific trade or industry. They 
really like industry leaders there, business and management leadership lessons, of course, but also LinkedIn can work for a lot of nonfiction authors in other categories like psychology. And we we see a lot of work-life balance and wellness and mental health conversations happening on LinkedIn. So I put that out there for nonfiction authors to think about that there might be an audience there. And it's a good platform if you are not highly visual. It is really a content platform, a words platform. If you just want to write things, I think LinkedIn is a good opportunity crossing those nonfiction genres. To dig in a little more specifically, though, the thing about TikTok and Instagram are that they are highly visual. If you are not creating video, you don't have a, much of an opportunity on TikTok. The other thing that I, we see really working on TikTok, you mentioned, of course, BookTok. The gold standard is to get your book adopted by BookTokers and beloved by BookTokers to have them talking about it. But what we see working well with authors on their platforms is really more like how-to and behind-the-scenes content. There are some crazy TikTok niches that I love. There's hashtag science talk and hashtag history talk. We've had authors really make a splash in some of these very specific verticals. Ari Loeb is a good example, who's the author of Extraterrestrial. Avi Loeb is an astrophysicist and he he's an academic. He's not the kind of guy that you would think of TikTok first for his platform, but he has made a nice splash there, getting almost 2 million views on some of his videos about talking about this asteroid that passed over Earth that has an unpronounceable name with a bunch of X's in it. He's made a really big splash on science talk. So digging into that niche area has been really helpful for him. We've had other authors that do how-to videos of like how to set up your writing day or behind the scenes of my life as a writer, which I think is interesting kind of low-hanging fruit for content for authors of any genre of you know fiction or nonfiction to talk about your life as a writer and what you're doing there. I think there's a huge community for that on TikTok. So this is all to say that there's content to be created there, but you have to be comfortable with video. For a lot of our authors, we also talk about easy ways to create video that doesn't have your face in it. If you don't want to be the star of a video, can you show your desk or your notebooks or your stack of books or your book haul, taking your books out of your bag from Barnes & Noble? Can you show us other things around your writing space and not have to put your face in it? There's also, there's easy ways to create content on TikTok to stitch videos with other existing videos. You can respond or duet to another video. So I think that those are also good ways for people to wade in and get started. But the barrier to entry there really is, the, I think, the video factor. Think about Instagram. We have kind of some of the same problems of it's been a highly visual platform. It is really was made for photos. But following TikTok, they have shifted the algorithm to prioritize video. So you're going to run into some of the same problems, I think, on Instagram. If you are not posting video, if you're not posting high quality photos that really stop people in their tracks every day with the captions, Instagram is going to be a challenge as well. So I mentioned these of, you know, Instagram is where those 25 to 45 year olds are hanging out. This is where they're discovering new content and following, I think, really following influencers and brands that they're interested in. But it is challenging sometimes for authors to come up with those photos or videos and, and create enough content to be active there. Well, and this makes sense why there's so much overwhelm with writers when it comes to book marketing, because often let's I'm going to be bold. I would say the majority of us are introverts or, you know, more dominantly introverted. Mm -hmm. So putting yourself out in a video format where you have to talk or if you feel like you have to be funny in some way that it's not the same expression as being able to sit and type a scene out. I can see why there's uncomfortability that you're trying to figure out, do I want to get over this? And if I am, how can I do it authentically? Because Absolutely. I don't think that we like to express ourselves in an inauthentic manner. I love what you're saying about focusing on one social media platform. I think that's another big thing. People feel like they have to do it all. And of course, the more that we exert ourselves into things, especially if we do not like them, the mm -hmm. less effective or I'd say the less quality. <laughs> 
of content we're probably going to produce. And then I think the other great thing that you're saying is that focus on the social media platform that probably is best for your readers. And I've heard another writers talk about that recently. And it makes so much sense because when you think about the demographics, and there is, there's definitely a division of demographics based on different social media platforms. And depending on what genre you're writing, you're probably going to have a higher likelihood of a certain social media platform that is going to maybe work in your favor and return an investment, or at least like spreading the word. Because I think that word of mouth is one of the best ways to sell books. So just to clarify, if I understand this correctly, if something was like a TikTok, that's probably going to be the YA romance area, like Colleen Hoover all over the place. That coming of age, maybe romance area would be a good place. I feel like TikTok's all about emotion, expressions of emotion. So tears and laughter. So if there are big emotional reactions in the story, that could be a good place if that's what you're writing. If you're on Instagram, we're probably gravitating towards, I think you said 25 to 45. Is that what you said? Yeah. So the 25 to 45. So that could be contemporary in any way. And then in Facebook, you said your mom's Pilates groups in the Midwest heavily, right? I, you know, my parents would, my dad in particular would, would be a Facebook junkie. So I think that when you're thinking about what your age group is for your reader, you could also be considering that. That's a really smart approach because I think that you're going in there with a system instead of guessing. I'm curious for your story. So you said yours is a coming of age story about witches. Are you prioritizing one social media platform? The other rule here is that pick one and do it well, but you also want to pick one that pick something that you don't hate. So, you know, I don't love Facebook myself, so that's probably going to be out for me. I've created a Facebook page for myself, but I just, I don't like using it that much. So for my probably under 45, I think, focused audience, there is a real interest in, I think, among millennials in witches. There's definitely some, a lot of witchy vibes in millennials. Mm -hmm. in, Instagram does feel like a good fit in that way. I prefer Instagram. That's a platform that I'm personally more comfortable and familiar with. But I have to say, if I'm going to take my own advice, that those under 25s who are also loving witches and loving a coming of age story, and it's a younger protagonist. I have an 18-year-old protagonist. I'm probably going to have to make a foray to TikTok and I haven't done it yet myself because I haven't felt like I could give it the attention to do it well just yet. Do I have think there's an advantage though? Like if you are uncomfortable being on TikTok or if you're uncomfortable creating content for TikTok, mm -hmm. but you would like to get on BookTok if that's considered the golden standard, would it be more important to invest your energy in finding already successful book talkers to talk about your book versus creating content yourself? Or do you think that you need to do both? I think exactly what you said of reaching book talkers as an alternative. I think it's a great strategy for a lot of authors. Really, not everyone has to be on TikTok. And, and same, same with Instagram. We think about this. So something we go through with authors is who can speak about your book on your behalf or who do we want to speak about your book on your behalf? We talk about influencers, we talk about book talkers and bookstagrammers. I think that's a really good strategy. Someone like me, I think I think eventually if I commit to it, I can come up with enough TikTok content to really make a splash there or to make a strong effort, let's say. I don't want to don't wanna talk myself up too much just yet before I try it. But for a lot of authors, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm when we start a campaign and then they might fall off. Maybe mm -hmm. they'll post three, four, five TikTok videos and then lose steam. And honestly, I think that sometimes is almost detrimental, but it's less effective than if they had not created a platform at all. I think, you know, sometimes taking a half-hearted stab at something is not worth the effort. So in that case, yes, I think if you are an author and don't have ideas for more than five TikTok videos or worry that you're going to run out of steam or worry that, you know, how am I going to keep up posting on multiple platforms? I think investing your effort in finding 50 to 100 
people on TikTok that are talking about books or topics that are relevant to your book and reaching out to them. Ask if they'd like to receive a free copy or ask your publisher to help you with that. Ask a marketing agency to help you with something like that and help with that research. I think that is probably a better use of a lot of author's time if they are really not intending to be on TikTok and be posting probably at least weekly. I think that's mm-hmm. really about the right rhythm. Instagram, you can post a little bit more frequently. So if you're not posting maybe two or three times a week on Instagram, not worth your time. If you're not posting at least once a week on TikTok, it's probably probably not a place for you to invest. That's solid advice. It's interesting to be thinking about this because going back to Twitter, it seems like Twitter, at least this is how I always approached it. Twitter for me was about accessing information. It was about finding people and accessing information, but specifically at, from a writer's standpoint, finding publishing professionals who are experts in the industry so I could learn from them. So deciding who I thought was a credible resource and a guided resource and following their content. As we look at is losing Twitter, potentially losing Twitter, something that writers need to actually be worried about because it's not reaching readers necessarily. The other social media platforms are what are collecting reader attention, which is what we're trying to do as writers. We're trying to get our books in the most hands possible. And of course, a book has to be a strong story if it's really going to sell. And I've, I've heard you talk about that. You were like, you were amazing. You got to work on Tara Westover's Educated. You know, that memoir shook me. So if you haven't read Tara Westover's Educated, you're missing out and you should read that one. Um, but something like that, that book, of course, marketing is going to help it. But that book was so exceptional that people were going to talk about it. And it's great because you need to market because marketing is going to get the book in the hand. But then ultimately, I feel like there are tipping points where there are certain people who read something and that's really how it blows up because they share it. I think you said Barack Obama shared that one. So of course, right. So like that was going to, that was going to blow up. I'm rambling a bit, but as I'm thinking about this, I'm just trying to process the idea of do writers need to feel worried if the book industry starts to leave Twitter more and more? Do they need to be worried or is it okay? Because it seems like the other social media platforms are doing really what we need to be concentrating on, which is getting books in the hands of readers. I think we're thinking about this similarly. What I see is I see great alternatives for authors on other platforms to reach readers. The other thing we haven't really talked about, though, are newsletters and email newsletters, I think are a great option, et cetera. But that is where I really see, I think, the industry conversations and connections going. I mentioned this newsletter called Publishing is Hard by a literary agent. There's another newsletter by by my agent called Books and Agents, Mm -hmm. um, Kate McKean, which is a substack that she started a couple of years ago. Those are the newsletters where I think aspiring authors, writers who are wanting to connect with the publishing industry are going to have to turn for, for this information going forward if the publishing industry leaves Twitter altogether. Yeah. What I see are people like me who are like, I love Twitter. I'm not ready to leave. It has to get really bad before I quit. I see the the publishing industry kind of hanging out, waiting to see what happens. So while authors might be leaving to then go connect with their readers elsewhere, fine, great. But agents, editors, marketers, people who are looking for the next story, I think are still hanging out on Twitter because we don't know what's next yet. But for for writers who want to do that research, who don't want to go to manuscript wishlist or comb through publishers marketplace, I do think it's going to be challenging, to be honest. I think writers who are you know trying to research their agent or trying to research the industry in general, I don't see the one collective place where all of that information is going to exist. I think there are these great substacks and newsletters that give glimpses and talk about specific topics. And 
will let writers connect with agents in different ways, but I don't see it as the one one-stop shop that Twitter used to be for. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, you know, so even just the 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 speed at collecting followers on Twitter compared to other social media platforms. So it feels like it's really difficult to, and I could be wrong on this. I'm talking to you because I'm learning, but I think that it feels very difficult to even reach 10,000 followers on Instagram where literary agents easily, I can see 40,000, 30,000. So when you have this, it's just so interesting. It feels like it's so much more difficult to collect followers on these other social media platforms. What is that? Why has Twitter been this greater resource of collecting followers who are looking for information? Because I know that's what I've been worried about. I'm like, oh no, if the literary agents, if the book marketers, if the editors leave Twitter, that's a place where I'm directed towards information that I trust. Of course, the fear that's happening with Twitter right now is that more people will be sharing news that we shouldn't be trusting, propaganda, things like that. So it's like when we talk about encroaching on freedom of speech, I think this is what we're really worried about because too often people just trust a resource without researching other resources. And that's where we have a huge flaw in the accessibility of information, but failure to do our own research on, is that a credible source? So yeah, I've, just talk to me about that because I'm trying to sort my thoughts out here. What I think is at play here, why it's so hard to build followers on Instagram or Facebook, for example, as well as one, the Facebook and Instagram algorithms are very different. They're trying to serve you content that is visually interesting to you or relevant to your interests based on really behavior. When you go to that discovery page on Instagram, and you're clicking on like cheese tacos and a pink quote in lifestyle, Instagram is looking at what visual elements of those photos might might interest you in the future. They're looking at what hashtags are used, but it's not always we as visual people might be interested in that content for lots of different reasons, or we might be looking for different things at different times. I think the way that the Twitter algorithm has worked in the past was really by connecting us with relevant topics and really relevant information. I think that Using text-based AI learning to learn, you know, why you're interested in this tweet. When you see those tweets recommended to you in a specific topic, something will be recommended as like dogs for me. And it may be, maybe it's not about dogs. Most of the time it is. Or something will be recommended to me in the, in books for whatever reason. And I think the Twitter algorithm has had a better time learning which tweets and information is more relevant to you. But I think as far as building a following goes, I think it's easier for us to click and follow that person off of one really relevant tweet. You are making the assumption that following this person will get you more relevant tweets of the same kind. On Instagram, you might be scrolling discovery page or scrolling through hashtags, maybe to find a recipe, but you're not going to follow that person because you only need a recipe this one time. Or maybe you're searching for vacation inspiration and maybe you find someone who has gone to three of the places you really want to go to. So you're going to follow them, but maybe you're just going to look at their hotel recommendations and then not follow them and never think of that person ever again. Something I've seen, I think with the rise of TikTok, something we've seen is that people discover influencers and personalities that they like on TikTok and then they go follow them and deepen the relationship on Instagram. I thought that was a really interesting insight that has come out of this. So you might discover there's a comedian that I like that I first saw on TikTok. But now I know specifically that I want to interact with that person on Instagram. And I look forward to those videos and know that I'm going to get that relevant quality content from that person every time and laugh every time at these videos making fun of HR people, basically. But I found that person first on TikTok. I think Twitter works in a similar way where you would maybe discover new information or discover relevant information. And then I think 
maybe much more quickly want to deepen that relationship on the assumption that that person would have new tweets that will be exactly what you need at exactly the right moment. That makes a lot of sense because as I think about that, TikTok is designed to be these seconds of videos. It's wiring in our brains. You scroll and if you sit in it for a little bit longer, that content in the algorithm is going to come more in your face. So like, if you're liking a certain, if something makes you laugh, you're going to watch it or maybe you're into something with sports and you're watching it, more of that content will come to you. But the attention span is short when it comes to TikTok versus deepening the relationship with Instagram. Now that makes sense because now it's, there's also a difference between someone looking at something visually, like you might be even conveying information through multiple images, but do people read the captions? So it'd be mm-hmm. interesting to figure out that statistic, like who's reading the captions versus who's looking at the photos, who's using the recipe or who's just looking at the pretty food. So yes. just figuring that out. And then when I think about Twitter, Twitter for me has been the shortcut to other resources. So it's interesting because you have 140 characters to use. So you're saying something very quickly. You're not scrolling past it like you would in TikTok, but you're consuming information quickly. And then usually you're linking to more information. It's really this medium. It feels like it's this way of, do you want to read more? Here's the high notes of what this is. Here are the big takeaways of what this is, or here's why I'm sharing this, but here's more information. And of course, you can just have regular tweets as well. But I think what I've gravitated towards, so maybe I'm coming from this from my own I am coming from this from my own viewpoint, but it's to find usually other resources. Like, okay, now I'm going to go read this article. I like this, where this article comes from. So I'm going to think about that. So that's interesting. And to think about all of that, it's important to reinforce what you said earlier about newsletters. I'm very interested in your belief that this is where we are going to start to turn because I have always been told that if you're going to invest your time in anything, it's growing your email list because that's where the ROI is. If you're actually going to sell books, if you're actually going to sell products, you have to grow an email list. And it's why the numbers are so important when you're querying nonfiction platforms, how many people are on your email list, right? Like, of course, like other platforms as well, but it seems like email list is where we actually see a return on investment or at least a higher percentage of return on investment compared to social media platforms which is engagement. So interesting to hear and reassuring that we can start to find more newsletters to sign up for if we're looking for content. I hope that we can continue to connect with people like with literary agents and book marketers and editors. There's so many people who are at work behind the production of a book. The most important name on that book, of course, is the author because they are the creator of that story. But I think it was in another interview you mentioned about how I'm looking at one now, so I'll pull it up. I have a Frederick Graffman book. On the Spine, Washington Square Press. So you mm-hmm. see that? What's that called? That's the colophon. Okay, so this is the colophon. So this is here. This is saying this is the publisher, right? Yep. And then it's the author's name. But probably very few readers pay attention to that unless you're in publishing. So absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Re- readers, at, even as you held up the book, I thought, oh, Frederick Bachman was published by... Atriot, Simon & Schuster. No, no, Washington Square Press. Okay, there. see, I don't even know where it's published. And, and I'm a fan. And it's, it's not something that readers pay attention to. But, but again, when we're talking about, you know, readers versus that ex- aspiring writing and author community, I think that is where the awareness is. Yeah, yeah. And I think, well, it's, it is important, especially if you want to be in this book industry, to understand every role. Because so many people go into the production of the book, like, thank goodness for acknowledgement sections. That's where I'm paying attention. Because 
the author is going to thank everyone who's involved and it takes a village to publish that book. So it takes a village. You know, when I think about one of the biggest things with book marketing, the cover design, huge. But this has been really insightful. We are at the top of the podcast and I wish I could pick your brain forever, but I know that we also want to be conscientious of times. At the very end of the podcast, I'd like to do a lightning three, where basically I do three quick questions that you can answer in one sentence. Do you feel ready for that? Sure, let's do it. Okay, so my first question for you is, you've had all of these great experiences as a book marketer. You're now very excited to be your own boss and launching your own business. What is one of your favorite bookmarking campaigns that you led? And why did you enjoy that one so much? I feel like I talk about this one a lot, but you mentioned one of my favorite campaigns, Educated by Tara Westover, just because, you know, that book was so amazing. The other one, this is not one sentence. The other one I always like to talk about is Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. And we got to work a little bit with his Daily Show team and with Trevor himself. And it's my favorite because I just learned to ask for the moon on that campaign. I would throw out something like, Viacom, can we have a billboard? And they're like, sure, we'll make that happen. I was joking. I did not actually expect for them to give us a billboard. This is way more than one sentence. But I love that campaign because it taught me just to ask for anything and see what happens. That's great. For my second question, one of my favorite things that I learned about you when I was researching was that you're self-taught. So you were an English major but you really found your way into this niche of book marketing on your own. And I think that is really inspiring because it means that you're a self-starter and you have figured this out by networking and by doing your research. And I think it's so important because as writers, as anyone who's interested in interesting this book industry, we learn a lot through experience. What are some pieces of advice or one piece of advice that you would give someone who, maybe I'll let you pick, if they're a writer, if they're someone who wants to become a book marketer, if they're someone who wants to become an editor, you pick the role. What would be one piece of advice that you would give them in helping them know how to start? Ooh, something I like to ask people when I'm interviewing to hire is exactly that. Of how do you start to do something that you know absolutely nothing about? Mm-hmm. I look for people who break it down and, you know, take the first step. The first step might be research, like you're talking about using Twitter for research. From there, I think a lot of it is just diving in and taking a chance. And, you know, I had never designed a website before. I had never built an email newsletter before. And I learned all of that just on the fly and in various roles. But I think after research, the thing is just to try it. The best way to learn is really through doing. And you might muddle your way through and it might take three times as long as you'd like, but but then the next time you'll know how to do it. You'll have conquered that. I love that. And when I when I decided to resign from teaching, I love teaching, but it was very scary. And that's why I'm, I'm extra and so proud of you for making your leap because that's scary. And I remember someone telling me, sometimes you just have to jump and the net will appear. So I hear you on that completely. It can be really scary to take that leap. But if you put yourself in that situation, like you said, it might take more time. But ultimately, you probably will understand it on a deeper level. That's really powerful. My third and final question for you. We talked a lot about social media. I know that social media is a great way of passing information, getting the titles of books and the images of books in people's minds, in their heads, and in their discussions. Now, outside of social media and outside of an email list, are there other book marketing strategies that are worth our investment? I smile because the one I want to talk about is kind of old school and there's so many newfangled things that we're doing and I feel like I'm always learning and trying something new. But really, the thing that sells a book is to get people to read it. 
Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time with authors on what we call a bug campaign now, but really what that is, is sending out the galley and the e-galley. I'm a huge fan of NetGalley for this purpose, getting the getting the NetGalley edition or the advanced reader copies into hands and getting early consumer reviews. It really is important. I see this, I think this is a little, little bit of a gap maybe sometimes with self-publishing when there maybe aren't galleys of something. This is where I'm like, I like NetGalley for self-published authors because you can get people to read the book mm-hmm. or officially on sale. That is one of those old school marketing techniques for book publishing that I think is never going to go away. We need people to read and talk about the book, whether it's influencers or it's regular readers on, you know, Goodreads, early Goodreads giveaways, or those early NetGalley giveaways, getting people just to read the book and fall in love with your writing, I think is still one of the most important things for for any book. That makes a lot of sense because when you're launching a book, you don't just launch a book. It takes months. How many months do you think it takes when you're preparing for a launch? I like to have six months of marketing time. We can do it with two or three, but really six months is the long runway to really make a splash with something. Okay. I think about giving your book away because getting people to rate and write a review is so important, right? Because that's how you're going to get people to talk about it. It can feel really uncomfortable to ask someone to read your book, but ultimately you have to do it. You never know whose life you're going to change with that story. It could be one person. It could be an unlimited amount of people. But a life is a life. So it's it's valuable in all its forms. So yeah, but this has been extremely insightful. I so appreciate your time. I know that we're in the week of holiday season and you were gracious enough to jump on early with me so I could get this out in a timely manner. So I so appreciate that. And if there's anything ever I can do to support you, if you want to come back on when your book comes out, we should do that too. Absolutely. That would be amazing. And Thank you for having me. Clearly, I can talk about this stuff all day. So I love just having having a partner to talk about social media with. And I love to learn from you. So that's great. <laughs> right? Thanks, Andrea. All right. This is great. Bye. Thank you so much for coming back for another episode on Lit Match. I'm so glad that you were here to listen to this with me and to learn more about important business insights in the publishing industry from a book marketing expert like Andrea. I know that there's a lot to think about as you reflect on this episode. If you want to jot down some notes, if you want to ask any questions, I'm always happy to talk with you outside of the podcast. You can email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com. I do my best to answer all of those emails and I'll do my best to help you find the information if I'm not the right person who can answer it. As always, thank you so much for supporting me and for supporting LitMatch. This podcast exists because of you, and I'm honored to bring you publishing insights, business information, and conversations with experts from literary agents to book marketers, and to teach you writing strategies, systems, and tools that can help make your manuscript the best version of itself. If you'd like to support me and you haven't rated or reviewed the show yet, please do so. I so appreciate it. This signals to iTunes that this podcast matters. And it helps me reach more writers like you who are feeling overwhelmed by the literary agent research process and would like to learn more about the industry from literary agents or writers who just want another great writing podcast that can help them elevate their craft. On top of that, if you can share this podcast with your writer friends or book industry friends, that means so much to me. One of the best ways, as we learned in this episode, is word of mouth. So the more people who can talk about this, means the higher likelihood that we can take these conversations, these important conversations that we're having on the show outside of the interview of the episode itself. I'd love to hear from you. If you have some great news, like you've signed a literary agent or you have a book coming out, 
definitely let me know. I would love to support you in any way possible. Until next time, happy writing. And if you're in the query trenches, persevere. I know it can be tough in there, but if you continue to persevere, if you continue to be resilient, whether that means going back and working on your manuscript and trying again or searching for the agents who are the best for you, I do believe you will find that match and that match will be one that shares a career vision. That's all I have for now. I hope that everyone had a happy holidays and I cannot wait to hear when you sign with the best literary agent for your business and writing career and of course, celebrate your book when it comes out.